Amen. You may be seated again. Welcome to Mercy Fellowship. Happy Mother's Day. Um, Here at Mercy Fellowship, we are saved by Jesus' work. We are changed by Jesus' grace, and we are living on Jesus' mission. And that means that we believe that we exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ who love God and who love people. And so uh, today, um, part of what you saw uh, just a few minutes ago was some parents making an intentional step to say, hey, um, we've been blessed with these children, and we want them to not just be a blessing to themselves but to others. And we pray um, that they would be followers of Jesus Christ. And when we say that, you know, we want to bless children, right? You know, we want to live blessed lives. And I think sometimes when we think about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, we think about blessing and we forget that, that we follow a Jesus who suffered, And so uh, if you were like, hey, um, you know, it's Mother's Day. Can you do like a happy sermon on on, like being a mom and moms are great? And then like next month, can you do a sermon about how the dads need to step up? Um, Like that's that's just not the way we roll here. Typically we preach right through books of the Bible. And so today we're in 1 Peter um, chapter 4 verses 12 through 9. And so we're going to be looking at what it means to be rooted in suffering. And if you're like, that's still, man, it's Mother's Day. Just know that in the last few weeks we've hit Jesus and politics and wives submit to your husbands. So super glad that's not what we're doing today on Mother's Day, okay? Um, So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, you can turn there. Uh, We also have our discipleship guides, which um, just kind of let you know where we are in the series. Uh, And so as we get there, the reason we said we want to be people who are rooted, living scattered in the world, but not shattered by the world, is because we recognize that so much of our roots in how we find our identity and our dignity and our sense of worth and purpose and even our, our stick-to-itiveness, if you will, um, so much of those um, have really been shown to be shallow the last couple years, right? Where the heat of what's going on in the world, not here in the Northwest, we haven't had actual heat for, I don't know, like three millennia at this point. I am, I'm deeply depressed in third winter, um, that's, that's where I'm at. I know the sun's out there. I think it's a liar. Uh, I think it's only gonna be 50 degrees today. Um, if, uh, if you're wondering why I look like a lumberjack going to a funeral, um, it's because, uh, I bought this shirt yesterday because it was 42 degrees in Arlington. So I'm just, I'm sad. Anyway, let's get back on track. We get so focused on the temporary when we need to be rooted in the transcendent. And we realize that if we are people who are are planted in this world, that that we are, if you're a Christian in particular, we are planted in wilderness. So that means that that as you grow and as you change and as your roots are, are rooted in Jesus, yes, we have a destiny that's eternal and glorious, but our present circumstances find ourselves in a place of wilderness, We're not in a perfectly arranged orchard. We're not in a climate-controlled biodome. Um, In 1 Peter, Peter writing to these churches um, in uh, modern-day Turkey says, you are the elect exiles. And he says both of those things, your elect and your exile, so that we can have a comprehensive understanding of what our identity in this world is. You're elect. You are redeemed by the God who created the world. You're in exile. You are reviled by the world that has rejected God. And those two 
identities, if you will, have to be uh, uh, embraced and, 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 and not just held in tension, but really understood if we're going to, to know how to navigate the world around us. And, and in, in Christian circles in particular, and, and maybe like out in the secular world, like there's this idea that we want to be people who are fruitful, right? I mean, or successful, or, or blessed, or pick whatever positive attribute you want. And, and the Bible is clear that like, hey, you, know, you were made to be fruitful, you were made to be productive. You were made to be a blessing to others, to enjoy the fruits of your labor, to have great relationships with one another. But we know that there's sin in the world. And so while we know that we want to be fruitful, or we're called to be fruitful, I think what we mean by that or what we believe we are entitled to isn't fruitfulness, but frictionless. Let me tell you what I mean. I was watching a, a docudrama series uh, on, on kind of the rise and fall, well, not the rise and fall, uh, the, the rise and fall of Uber, like, like you know, the little cab company, right? Um, and, and the CEO, uh, uh, Travis Kelnick, was like, I want the experience of an, of an Uber passenger to be frictionless, right? If you've ever been in a big city and you get in a cab and you're like, dang it, I don't have cash. Man, I don't know uh, if he's going to go the right way, all those things, right? He's like, no, I want the experience to be frictionless, right? What's Amazon Prime? frictionless, until you get the notification that it's two days late, right? And then, oh no, two days late, what am I going to do? Okay. Right? Netflix. The, all, all the tech world is saying, we're going to have a frictionless society, and part of that is because we're not going to interact with one another. You just have a nice electronic wall between you. It'll be less personal, more transactional, and the challenge with it is that a frictionless knife life is not possible in a world where, where our hearts, where our relationships, where our society has sin and brokenness, and, and where, where you're, you're in a world that has an orientation that is, is not in line with God's design for fruitfulness, God's design for flourishing. Where there's sin and brokenness in the world, suffering will be experienced. And so this side of heaven, suffering is not the exception but the rule. So being rooted in our identity, our dignity, our destiny helps us endure in suffering. And so there's times where you're going to be shaken. There's times where you're going to be unsettled, saddened. But we said if we're in Christ, we're not going to be shattered because we're rooted in him and we will be rooted in our suffering. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to be in verses 12 through 19. I've broken up into four quick sections starting with um, verses 12 through 13. We look at what it means to be beloved, beleaguered, but not burned. Verse 12 says this. This whole chapter, right? Last week, Matt um, Nickel was preaching while we were at man camp and just kind of, hey, what does it mean to be a Christian in the world? What does it mean to be rooted in love, rooted in the world? He says this in this chapter. Beloved, to not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice, insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So there's three things in this section of scripture that I want to point out that help us to be rooted in suffering. Number one is this. We remember our identity. Now, if you've gathered with us regularly, you're like, man, I feel like he hits this a lot. Well, the reason that we hit this a lot is because we get so unsettled in our identity all the time. We search for it in, you know, am I a good mom? 
Am I a good dad? Am I a good employee? Am I a good son? Am I a good citizen? What's my bank account? What's my waistline? Right, all those different things we find our identity in. And in the midst of how do you engage in the world, how are you going to endure suffering and even still have fruitfulness and joy with it? Peter, with all of these people who live in a world that is, uh, like I said, opposed to the gospel, exiled, if you will, scattered amongst a society that's, that, that's in some ways hostile. He wants them to remember their identity. And so like the first word of verse 12 is not a throwaway word that you just move on to before you get to the, the meat, rich theological truths. It is the theological truth that if you are in Christ, if you've pledged allegiance to Jesus, if you've been forgiven by Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, your identity, no matter what your circumstances is, is beloved. That's who you are. Wait, wait, again, a few minutes ago, right? Moms and dads, right, holding their children. They are beloved. And even in that, that joy at, at that moment when it's like, hey, you're getting a Jesus Storybook Bible, you're getting some free coffee. Like, like then there's the moments in the middle of the night Right? Oh, they haven't pooped for three days, and then they do, and it's, and it's two wardrobe changes. I don't want to even know how many diaper changes were done in the last two hours just to get to this point. But in all of that, they never cease being beloved by the parents. And our God is a heavenly Father who loves us exponentially more than our fathers, our mothers. He says, you are beloved our eternal identity is beloved even when our internal thoughts are conflicted and even when our external reality is, is one that is difficult. You never cease to be beloved. The word can actually translate as well to dear friends. He, he just really wants to get that communal sense that if you're in Christ, you are never alone and so we, we embark on our lives here, again, forgetting that we're planted in wilderness and we think that maybe my identity, maybe my significance is gonna be in, in being settled in this community and putting down deep roots or maybe I'm gonna find it when I, I go to another community or another state, right? And, and the reality is whether, whether you're here in the Northwest from now until Jesus comes back uh, or whether you're, you're moving to another state or, or whether you're going away to join the military or whether you're uh, you know, about to get married or whatever the nef- next life change is, all of that, while absolutely significant and meaningful, it's all temporary. Because where we are going is forever. And so we find our identity and like our, our places of being, but we, then we forget we're not in our forever home. We're passing through. Everything you do, yes, will have an eternal impact. But we are living temporary lives. And so he wants us to be realistic about the challenges of of being an embodied soul. Sometimes we think of spiritual matters just in, well, that's spiritual, and then I got this physical thing over here, and I got, you know, business over here, or or financial, or or, or whatever. No, we we are holistic people, mind, body, and soul. That's the way God has designed us. You are an embodied soul. Those little babies are embodied souls. The ones who are being knitted in their mother's wombs right now, even in this room, embodied souls. The Lord knows every one of their days. The Lord knows their lives. The Lord loves them and knows them more than we do. 
And so Peter says, hey, I know it's going to be challenging, but you are beloved. You are dear friends. And that is like, you're a dear friend, you're a dear friend, you're a dear friend. But he's also saying, you're dear friends. Together, right? He's, he had a whole section in chapter 2 talking about how we're being built up as a spiritual house. That our Christianity is not an individual sport, but it's something that brings us together where we experience joy as individuals, but we're brought together collectively and in part so we can endure suffering together. And so we can celebrate mornings like this together. Celebrations are greater the bigger they are. Suffering is easier to endure when you have people around you caring for you, who know you, who love you. And so he goes on to say, hey, yes, you're beloved, but I want you to know um, as well that, that your suffering shouldn't be a surprise. And I just love that. Beloved, don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes. And so he's saying suffering should be experienced if not embraced. And I want to be clear what this is and what it is. It's not defeatist pessimism, right, leading to discouragement, despair, like, yep, oh, see, it was sunny. It's getting darker out there right now on cue. The cloud's coming in. Fourth winter for the next three weeks. Somebody didn't see a groundhog. Wow. We just went full pegging on that comment right there. Okay. We'll be doing Daniel in the fall, uh, Exiles in Babylon. Okay. No surprises, though, right? Life's going to be suffering. It's going to be hard. Happy Mother's Day, right? That, that's not what he's saying. No, it's a settled gospel realism about the condition of the world to help us set clear expectations. He's like, hey, hey, I just want you to know about the road ahead. He's told us in chapter one that the end of the road is an inheritance that is imperishable, unfading, is glorious, is amazing. He's like, but I also want you to know that while that destination is amazing and it's forever, the temporary between now and then, it's gonna get bumpy. It's gonna be challenging. So I just want you to be able to buckle up a little bit. So you're not shocked, so you're not shattered when suffering comes, but you, you're not surprised by it. Now, let's not be pessimistic people who are just always Eeyore waiting for the next shoe to drop. Because he's saying the reason for this all through 1 Peter is so we'd have a rooted hope. Hey, yeah, the road's bumpy. Guess where we're going? Hey, the road's bumpy, but we know who's leading us. Hey, the road's bumpy, but we know who's with us. And it's the Lord, our shepherd both individually and, and together. He is writing to people who are in a society who, that are not in line with the truth, love, mercy, and justice of God. And so he just doesn't want them and he doesn't want us to be naive about the world we're in. I think so many times we get bent out of shape because we have expectations that utopia is around the corner. Just end that war. Just end that pandemic, Right? Just, just one more Star Wars movie, right? Like whatever it is, like hope is around the corner. Something's gotta be better than the last three. Okay. If you believe that life with Jesus in this world was going to be frictionless, then I want our expectations to be refined so that we can rejoice when the friction comes. And maybe you've, you've heard it said, right? God won't give you more than you can handle. Guys, that's not good news. And it's not true. See, we are not called to be self-reliant people. I've got this. God knows I can handle it because clearly if I'm suffering, like he knows I can deal with it on my own. We're not called to be self-sufficient people. 
self-reliant people, but we are to be rooted, resilient people who are Christ-reliant. That we recognize we can't bear the load our own. That we can't endure on our own. That in times of suffering, in times of trial, that we become more Christ-reliant, not more self-sufficient. That means when you're hurting, you press into gospel community. You don't pull away. It means when you're suffering, you press into God's word, not take a fast from it. It means you, you pray when things are awesome and praise God for that. And you bring him your weeping and your groaning that, it, that like words can't even express, that you can't handle. And he says, I, I can handle it. I can bear it. I'm here to be your good shepherd. That helps us understand Number two, so number one was our identity. Number two is what an actual fiery trial is. So he uses this term, fiery trial, and I want us to think about it as a purifying fire. That the heat of suffering for a Christian, when you're suffering for righteousness, that heat is not a wrath furnace. Okay? Suffering's hot, it burns. But what's happening is a fiery trial, a refining fire that both purifies us and produces change and growth God has for us. So, so he says fiery trial, but then he also says test. And man, we're starting to get to some pretty triggering words here, right? I want to be clear what the test is. The test is not pass-fail. The word test here is not like a grade that God gives you where God's like, okay, um, I've now saved, um, you know, uh, Joe over here. Um, he is now a believer. I want to make sure that he's really a Christian, though. So, I mean, his life was going pretty good. I mean, he still repented of some stuff. He, he was told that he'll live his best life now, and God loves him and has a wonderful plan for his life. And so, ha, 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 my plan is suffering. No, that's not the way our God works. The test is not pass-fail. The test is not God giving you a grade and he's handing you a test, hoping that you make it, and he's somehow indifferent about the result, like, well, burns you up. I guess you really weren't a Christian to begin with. He's not uninvolved with the outcome, right? Because we just said, in these times of suffering, it's not self-reliance, can I make it through? But it's, ooh, I can't make it through. I need to be more Christ-reliant. So the test isn't pass-fail, I know I've said that a few times, but how many of us, we talked about this last week at our man camp, how many of you, how many of us, we can call up the fails real easily. Oh man, we got a soundtrack of the L's in our life, the losses in our life. Sometimes that soundtrack sounds like your mom or dad. Sometimes it sounds like a boss. Sometimes it sounds like a friend who's betrayed you. Sometimes it sounds like, like a world that says you're not worthy to contribute. I don't know what it is, but that soundtrack of losses, of failures, it just feels like it mounts and mounts. And so, because um, we know we've failed, sometimes we're even right. Like, no, actually, I failed. Like, I, I sinned there. I hurt someone else. I hurt myself. I sinned against God. And in those moments when those, those failures come up, this section could be very anxiety-producing, very insecurity-feeding if we don't understand that God is not trying to trip us up with tests, but he's trying to lift us up. And so the test word 
actually translates better to trial. And I know we're like, is that better? Well, it is in this sense. If you think about it like a legal trial, a legal trial, in theory, exists to reveal what is true. To get through all the noise, all the evidence, all the testimony, and come to a conclusion about what is true. So that means when we see test or trial in the, here, that the purposes of the trial is to reveal what's already true. Reveal that God is working in you. Reveal that God is refining you and changing you, all while you still have that rooted identity. God desires to produce something in you. He desires to produce something in us as Christians. In the last two years, the last three years, the last 10 years, has become increasingly more and more challenging to be a faithful Christian in the world, at least here in the U.S., here in North America, in other places. He desires to produce change in us, and sometimes he does that with the heat of fire, knowing it will produce refinement, not scorched earth. We cannot hope to successfully avoid affliction, but we can be promised that we will be given what we need to endure it in Christ. In this, the Bible is incredibly realistic about the nature of pain, suffering in the world. And that leads us to number three in this section. We follow what theologians would call a cruciform path. Put another way, we follow the path of Christ that led him to the cross. See, we follow a God, as I said at the beginning, who suffered for us. That Christ's path to glory, right? I mean, these verses here say like, hey, hey, rejoice because you're going to be glad when his glory is revealed, but we skip over the sharing in his sufferings. See, Christ's path to glory, you can read about it in uh, Philippians chapter 2, but his path to glory was one of emptying himself. His path to glory was one of going from king on the throne to baby in the manger, to marginalized carpenter, to amazing winemaker, to ministry, to teaching, to preaching, to healing, to mission, yes, amen, to being reviled, to being slandered, to being abused, to being found guilty when he was in fact innocent, facing injustice, to suffering on the cross, to not his best life now, but to die for his people. And so if we're followers of Jesus. Peter's just making that connection that, yeah, our path ends in glory, but it goes through suffering. It goes through the valley of the shadow of death. And so, Christ has experienced comprehensive affliction so that he can comprehensively address us in our, in our struggles, in our troubles, in our suffering. We, we follow Christ's path but not just like following footsteps of somebody that went, yeah, gosh, Christ suffered a couple thousand years ago. He doesn't know what I'm dealing with today. No, but we actually walk that path with Christ. Matthew 28 says, Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. That's in our moments of glory and victory. Jesus is like, yes. And it's in our moments of suffering where he says, I know. 
I've been there. I've suffered loss. I've suffered betrayal. I know what you're going through. And so when pressure mounts, Christ is, we say, that deep reservoir we've been given to connect to as an abundant source of of comfort, of joy even, to flow in us and flow through us. And so we've said as a church this year that we are rooted. No matter what's going on, we are rooted because Christ is in us. And yeah, we'll, we'll share in his sufferings, but we also get to share in his glory. That's because our identity is one that is ultimately glory. Right? You lose sight of that. Follow Jesus to suffering in the cross. I'll pass. Follow Jesus. He'll be with you in your suffering. And he promises to deliver you to glory. That's good news. So that means that no matter how hard things get or, or whatever I'm suffering through, that like, that, that like if the story, there's a, a lyric in a song I've been just listening to on repeat, like if the story's bad, it means the story's not over. Oh, that gives us hope in the midst of suffering. When our destiny is glory, we couldn't rejoice in trials because we know where we are going is better than where we are. Because we are beloved, we will not be burned in our suffering. And that leads us to the next verses, 14 and 15. Like, wait, is this, is this, that means all suffering? So like, man, I, I, I give myself in a jam. I do a bunch of stuff. Like, right, God's just going to like whisk that away. Well, here's some more verses for us to, to help us have a deeper understanding of suffering. 14 and 15 says this. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Because the spirit of glory, and in some transcripts, and of power, and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. One big idea in this whole section, not all suffering is created equal. Not all resistance is righteous. So the suffering in view here that he's talking about, right, this, this insult, right, it's not a result of sin, it's, right? Sin hurts and sin has consequences, I should say specifically, it's not a result of your sin. He's talking about how Christians are responded to in society. He's talking about when Christians face legitimate persecution, when Christians are treated unjustly, when Christians are misunderstood, mischaracterized, or maligned, or when Christians are perfectly understood and maligned. When the society says, no, I'm I'm not having what you're serving. In some countries, in some parts of the world, that is, that is legal and systemic, right? Can't bring a Bible in here. Can't have your church gather here. Sounds like North Korea. Might be Canada. I'm not sure. One of those two places. In other times, in other places, it's not systemic, but it's just overt mocking, cultural maligning, I've been a fan of SNL since I was a kid. I used to stay up late uh, before church the next day watching SNL on a little TV with the dials and the knobs. I was always tired the next day. I'm not quite sure why that was. Um, and so, uh, anyway, I've been watching since I was eight, which probably helps you understand why my like, mental faculties are not great. Um, and, and, you know, the last, I can't even tell you how long, but in the last 10 years, right? I mean, man, SNL doesn't mind, you know, making fun of some Christians, 
You don't see a lot of Muslim jokes, Mormon jokes. I mean, Mormon jokes. The reality is, in popular culture, Christians are an easy target. Christians are easy to mock. They're culturally maligned. Sometimes societal marginalization is part of our path. But this word, um, insult, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big word. It means reproach, reviled, abused, slandered. And, right, you, you hear that and you're like, no thanks. Reviled, abused, slandered, none of us want that. Right, I said our, our deepest desire isn't really fruitfulness planted in the wilderness. We want frictionless in the world. And so when we're like, ooh, oh man, they're mocking those Christians. Well, I'm glad I'm not like one of those Christians. I'm way more sensible, right? I would never post that on my Instagram like they did, right? Whatever it is, I mean, I, I don't want to get to us and them, but I, I do believe that our deepest desire or aim is frictionless. And so when we see the insults coming, we want to do everything we can to avoid them. Keep your head down. Don't take shots. It's because we see being maligned or insulted by the culture as a curse. And what Peter's saying here is, is what's actually true is counterintuitive. He says, if you're insulted for Christ, that's not a curse. That's actually a blessing. Like again, remember, we follow Jesus who was insulted, who was reviled. And so I want to put it very simply. It is better to suffer for what is right than surrender to what is wrong. And we say that, I say that. I'll just tell you, I got a lot of coward moments week by week. I'd rather just, I'm like, no, just give me the, the verse on just living a quiet, peaceful life. See, Receiving reviling for the name and fame of Christ is a blessing to be affirmed by the Holy Spirit, he says. It means that God's working in you. However, and here's the caveat. I love that Peter's like, I think I know why they might go with this. They might get super triumphalistic and, and just be like, you know what? If I'm getting made fun of, it's because I'm a Christian. So I'm just firing away at everybody. Onward, Christian soldier. And Peter's like, yeah, I, I tried that, actually. In fact, I got a sword, cut a guy's ear off. Jesus was like, stop it. He put the ear back on. Can't even keep the ear off of the guy I sliced open, right? Peter's like, I think I might know where they go with this because Peter was a little brash too. So then he puts in this caveat that says, hey, not all resistance is righteous. He's saying, you might face suffering just because you're a jerk. You might face suffering because you're walking in sin. You might face suffering because the way you're running your business or the way you're, you're doing things just isn't in line with God's design. You might be facing suffering because you've believed a lie that to love other people is to hold up lies. That's challenging. That's difficult. And so he's saying the reason you're frustrated is because, as we said earlier, sin leads to suffering. Sin hurts and sin has consequences. And where you steal life or property or dignity from others or you're engaging in promoting what is false or participating in what is evil, he's like, yeah, you might suffer and hate to break it to you. You don't get to pull out the Jesus card for that one. And then he throws this one in at the end, which I think is actually super helpful. He throws in meddler. And the word meddler is someone who gets involved in affairs or matters that are not theirs to engage with. Guys, that's to be super freeing. 
Because that means while we are called to the truth, and while each of us has a sphere of influence within, within our home, our families, our businesses, schools, beyond, right? They, they're like, guess what? This should be the big, like, exhale, that every battle is not ours to fight. But don't do the other thing where you say no battles are yours to fight. It requires wisdom, it requires discernment, it requires prayer, it requires being gracious and merciful. To be a Christian whose identity and actions flow from Christ. It means that our lives are the outsider. Peter's hit this several times. Ought to be honorable even as we're seen by them as shameful. So if you're gonna be hated, please, please, please let it be because of what is true about Jesus Christ. What's true about God's word. Not just because we want to get into a fight. The next verses say this. We've got to keep things going. 16 through 18. There is going to be times as Christians, he says, that we're going to suffer as Christians. He says this. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that name. For it's time for judgment to begin in the house of God. If it begins with us, what will be the outcome to those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if, um, quoting Proverbs, if the righteous is scarcely saved... What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Whew. Peter's, Peter's sending some scorching stuff here. We got, we got judgment. We got fire back again. We got sinners. What does this mean? That suffering does not always equal shame. See, um, Jesus was with his disciples, and um, uh, some people came to him and said, hey, hey, there's this guy over here, he's blind. Who is the sinner? Is he a sinner, and that's why he's blind? Or are his parents the sinners, right? Why is your kid so screwed up? Is it because of you, or is it because of your kid? And Jesus says, no. So that God's glory can be revealed. It's like, actually, in this case, He's blind because I'm going to make him see. And the guy gets to see. And his, his life is restored because he was still in the bad chapter. The story wasn't over. The story was he got to be healed by Jesus. That should lead to some great humility for all of us and even comfort for us when we're suffering. When we see others suffer, maybe just take a pause and hold off on declaring why they're suffering. Well, I know why you're suffering. I saw the way you parent your kids. Reap what you sow. Come on. Come on. That we don't fully understand the purpose of suffering until the rear view. And a lot of it won't happen until we're in glory and God reveals all of it to us. So while you're suffering, we can know that it's, it's purposeful because it's of the Lord. But we won't always know what that purpose is. And when you see others suffering, let's be people of compassion, humility, mercy, grace. See, otherwise we act like suffering equals shame and blessing equals honor as if both of those are earned. And that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the gospel of Jesus Christ is not about what you've earned, but about what Jesus has accomplished for you in his place. Not what you've done, what he's done. Not what you've given to God, but what you received from him. Some of the most amazing people I've encountered are those who have 
suffered greatly. Last week at man camp, there was a moment where um, a bunch of us pastors were kind of kind of sitting around in, the, in this room, and it was it was late uh, into the night, um, and, and there was uh, a guy named Bill and a guy named Brad, and and um, Bill had lost his wife about 15 years earlier, and he'd he'd gotten remarried, and had kind of gone through that journey, and my friend Brad, um, his wife um, his wife passed two years ago, like this month. And he's just remarried in the last month. And, and they're just, the two men are, are commiserating about the grief and the sorrow, but also the restoration and the joy. And, and I'm literally sitting in between these guys. And, and, and if you know me, believe it or not, I was actually silent for like moments. Because that was sacred space of two, not perfect men, the two men who love Jesus, who've been loved by Jesus and yet have suffered something that I don't even want to ever imagine and are yet praising him all the more through tears, through grief. To suffer is not to be ashamed when we suffer with and for the Lord. He goes on in 17 to talk about judgment and man, that is a because there's this, well, what about judgment? What about other suffering that's unjust, right? That fiery trial, we said is a refining fire, and he says it's God's judgment. Uh-oh, we don't like that word at all. Wait, did, did, did the angry bearded preacher on Mother's Day start talking about judgment? Yup, and here's why. Because we hate that word. Because in our society, in our culture, there is nothing worse than being judgmental, right? If you are judgmental, oh, you will be judged so harshly by those who are not judgmental right? You're so judgmental. I'm judging you for that right now. And the problem is, is we equate judgment with condemnation, as opposed to judgment being evaluation. Theologian Wayne Grudem, when he uh, 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 wrote the commentary uh, for these verses, said that, no, the outcome of judgment could be approval, could be discipline, or it could be condemnation. And with those, we're like, yes, approval. <laughs> Discipline? Hmm. Condemnation. But, but, but then, theologically, right, we, we see that, 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 that there are two of those that if you're in Christ, you, that you could experience. We know that at the end, when, when you die, if you're in Christ, God is not going to look at your life and say, all right, karma, you did more good than bad. Really glad you turned things around at 30, because from 30 to 62, you did real, real good. No, no, no. At the end, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. That is what your judgment will be if you're in Christ. So the invitation to be a Christian, the invitation to repent of your sin is one to still receive judgment and having the outcome of that judgment be approval. Because your life is hidden with Christ, who God says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. So that when we die and we meet Jesus face to face as judge, yes, but also as our savior, we are not rejected, but we are received. Another outcome for those of us who are Christians is at times when we are walking out of line with God's will or purposes in our life, we may experience discipline. Hebrews 12 talks about how discipline is a gift from a good and loving father to a son or daughter. Because discipline says you're loved 
Because discipline is not punishment. Discipline is correction for the purposes of future flourishing. That might be the outcome of judgment. However, he's super clear. For those who do not, and he says obey the gospel of God, it's not about our obedience, it's about, it's about that, that belief in Jesus in our place. Then no matter how good you've been, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us in this room. Without Christ then, the outcome of that judgment is condemnation. But there's hope. I mean, you're hearing the words right now, the invitation is not to continue to walk towards condemnation, but to repent of sin to receive Jesus. To walk in a new life that you know ends in glory. The invitation's for glory. And for your suffering not to be a, a preview of eternity, but to be a bumpy road on the way to glory. See, a contrite heart God will not despise. So either your response to who Jesus is will be one of contrition or will be one of condemnation. I want to be clear about this too. As Christians, we get real quick on, yep, they're condemned, they're being disciplined, they're approved. That is not our place. Our God is the judge. Our God is the one who also brings mercy and grace. Judgment will come from God alone, as will grace, as will mercy. And remember, guys, when we're seeing people, we're seeing them in the midst of their story. God already knows their story from start to finish. So if you see somebody suffering, if you see somebody going in a direction where you're like, I don't like the direction they're going, then pray. Because ultimately it's up to God anyway. All right, last verses and then we'll close. Here's one last verse here in 1 Peter, and we got a, a verse in 2 Corinthians. 1 Peter 19, given all of this, he says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So finally, how do we respond in the midst of suffering? We trust our souls to the one who's trustworthy. That word in trust is, is so much more than like, you can believe what God says. It is that. It's so much more than God doesn't lie. No, God doesn't lie. It's so much more than just, well, I believe you. Well, we can believe what God says. No, that word in trust is that God will be the steward of your soul. And that word soul is not just your spirit, it's your whole being. That he cares for you. He shepherds you. He stewards you. He is your guardian. He is the captain of your soul. It means that your identity is secure. It means your eternity is secure. And when we say secure, we're not just talking like you're locked up in a safe or in a safe room so that nothing can get at you, but instead, you know, you're actually being stewarded and shepherded by God as you go through whatever trials and suffering you're going through because at the end of it, he's walking you arm and arm into glory. You are never alone when you are in Christ. You've been given, he says, the Holy Spirit in you, and your identity and eternity are secure in Christ. So we say for this year, right, that we want to be resting because we are in Christ. And that should give us some resolve because Christ is for us. 
Because when we're experiencing suffering, and he says, according to God's will, we have such great comfort because of two things. It is temporary and it is limited. See, temporary is such good news because we know that even in the worst seasons of suffering, there is an end point coming. Each moment, each moment moving you closer to final deliverance. Put simply, this too shall pass. It's good news as well that it is limited. Limited is such good because we know that we may not be crushed because it is a preview of the Father who's our Savior, provider, and sustainer. He is present with us in those furnaces of trial. See, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10 says it this way. Paul writing to another church that's suffering in, in similar ways. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not dismayed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so the life of Jesus may also manifest in our bodies. In a moment, uh, the band's gonna come back up and we're gonna sing and you guys are gonna stand and we're gonna sing to our king. Maybe, maybe it's through tears because you're suffering. Maybe it's because you're rejoicing because God's with you in the suffering. Maybe because you're rejoicing because things are just good. It is okay for things to be good. Like, praise God for that. If you're a Christian, if your faith is in Jesus, then we invite you to come forward carrying the body of Jesus' death in you by taking the cup that is his blood and taking the bread that is his body. That is a symbol that in all circumstances we worship a Christ who has suffered for us. And when you take that, solemnly remember what Christ has done for you. And then smile because of where Christ is taking us to glory as we continue to trust Jesus. Let's pray.